Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you enlighten us by your word. Teach us the things that you have planned for us to learn this day since eternity past, that we may be transformed by them and that we may be your servants. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we began a study of the covenants, and I referred to this as a canopy tour, as kind of the way you would study and uh, do an analysis and, and look at a vista of a cloud forest or a rainforest. You can get down and look at the, the, look at the leaves, you can look at the trees, or you can get above the canopy and look for a distance and see miles of the canopy of the, of the rainforest or the cloud forest. That's what a study of the covenants is, because a, covenants, a, a study of, of the covenants of God, the major covenants of, uh, in the Scripture, is not taking a passage and, and, and analyzing the syntax or the, the grammar, breaking it apart and putting it back together. It's not analyzing a chapter or a book. It's analyzing these big picture themes that run throughout the Scriptures, and that's what the four major covenants are which is the, the, the essence of what we'll be studying in this study of the covenants. We're going to study the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. These are an essential part of the meta-narrative of history. We've talked about this before many times, but the Scriptures lay out the... The, the, the main big picture theme of the scriptures is creation, the fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. Creation, the fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. Creation and the fall happen pretty quickly. So creation, Genesis 1 and 2, the fall, Genesis 3, and those are finished. I mean, you, you see references, of course, to creation and to the fall throughout the entire scripture. But the events of creation and the fall are finished by the end of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. And so the overwhelming majority of the scripture, the overwhelming majority of history, deals with redemptive history. God's plan of redemption of the lost, you and me, of his creation that has rebelled against him, and the anticipation of God's coming kingdom, which is really related to redemption, but that's what events are marching towards. And so primarily what you see in the four covenants is a focus on redemption and on God's coming kingdom. We saw that the word covenant is the Hebrew word berit, which means covenant or agreement. An agreement is really a promise. That's essentially what agreement is, what an agreement is. You know, you, you enter into a, to, you know, Exxon and Chevron, go do a, a deep water uh, well in the Gulf of Mexico, and they enter into a 150-page contract, and they hire, uh, each hire a stable of lawyers to, to negotiate a big contract. That's all it is. It's just promises. Now, the promises are complex with a bunch of subparts, but Chevron promises this and Exxon promises that. Many multi-layers to it, but that's all a contract is is a set of promises. And that's what the covenants are. They're major promises from God. Last time we began by looking at the first of the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant. And what you have to do in each covenant that you approach is you have to analyze it because the answer is not the same on all of them. Is the covenant, just like you would with a contract, is the covenant unilateral, and unconditional, right? I come and I say, I'm going to mow your yard. You don't have to pay me. I'm going to mow your yard. There's no condition on you. I'm just going to, I'm going to pull up with my trailer and, and my weed eater and my blower, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to get my mower, and I'm going to mow your yard. Okay, well, that's a unilateral, unconditional covenant. It's not dependent on you paying me. It's not dependent on you doing anything. You have no obligation. I'm the only one that has an obligation. And my obligation is dependent on my trustworthiness. It's not dependent on anything you're going to do to induce me to mow your yard. 
that I can't get those references out of my brain because this is kids. We mowed yards a gajillion yards and painted a whole bunch of houses. So that's always the reference that my brain goes to when I think of a unilateral or an unconditional or a bilateral covenant or a conditional covenant. So on the one hand, you have unilateral, unconditional. Unilateral meaning only one party has an obligation. Unconditional, it's not contingent on anything other than the veracity, the trustworthiness of the party that made the obligation. On the one hand, you have unilateral, unconditional covenants, promises, we'll call them. And then on the other hand, you have bilateral. Both parties have an, have an obligation. Conditional covenants. One party's obligation is, not, is contingent on the other party's obligation and vice versa. So you have to analyze the covenants. Which one is it? Which basket does it fall in? Unconditional unilateral or bilateral conditional? It's, an, it's very, very important to, to know the answer to that because otherwise you really can't understand these major promises of God. So we saw last time we began just a, a, a brief look at the first of the major covenants, the Abrahamic covenant. And we saw that it is foundational for our understanding of the Bible. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, reads like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's missing? There's a word that's missing in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. We're in a study of the covenants. What word is missing in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3? The first of the major covenants. There's no word covenant in here. Right? There's, there's, the Hebrew word berit is not found in, in this first promise from God to Abraham. And that's because here in the, the beginning of the covenant, this is the first reference to the Abrahamic covenant, it's a promise. The, it, this promise will be formalized as a covenant by God two chapters later in Genesis, 50, Genesis 15 where you will find the word berit. Here it's, it's, the form, it's, it's the promise given and then that promise is formalized in, a, in an official covenant in chapter 15. But... As we saw last time, there are three parts of this covenant. There's land, seed, and blessing. We're going to look at each one of those in detail, but this morning I just want to, at least in, in the beginning of this message, I just want to touch briefly on the beauty of those three. Because like so many things in the Scripture, here we see this covenant, the covenant of God, and these three components, land, seed, and blessing, which are the essence of the Abrahamic covenant, you see them as a diamond that presents itself. You turn it this way in the light, and it presents itself with great beauty and complexity. And then you rotate it just slightly in the light, and you see an entirely different dimension to land, seed, and blessing. And then you twist it the other way around in the light, and you see another dimension to land, seed, and blessing. This is a multi-dimensional promise especially with respect to these three components. Let me start with the dimension of humanity. Land, seed, and blessing applies personally, nationally, and universally. Land, seed, and blessing has a dimension that is personal, that is national, and that is universal. Let me talk about each one of those. Land, personally, God gave land to Abraham, the man. Personally, he gave them, him land within the area of Canaan. Nationally, God gave and will give the nation of Israel a specific piece of real estate in the Middle East that's comprised of Canaan, but it even extends beyond the ancient land of Canaan universally. The Gentiles will come through and to Israel's land to have access to the king of the world who will shower the world with blessings, with prosperity. And the Gentiles, talking about the universal aspect, the global aspect to this 
components of the Abrahamic covenant, the land component of the Abrahamic covenant. That's for the benefit of the Gentiles too. Now, clearly the land is owned, will be owned and possessed by Israel. It will be her land when Christ returns. But the land is a benefit to us as well because through the land, the king lives in the land. And, and we will access the king, have worship privileges to go to the king and fellowship with the king through this great land which is first promised to Abraham here in the very beginning in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It is not just the land that has the three dimensions of personal, national, and universal. It is also the seed. Personally, God gave a couple who were childless way up in years, very, very up in years. He gave them, he gave a childless couple descendants. I'm talking about Abraham and his wife, Sarah, he gave them children. So the seed promise was personal to Abraham. It was national because the nation of Israel didn't exist, and over two million Israelites will leave Egypt as a nation. God gave a population to the nation of Israel. You have no population, you have no nation. So the seed part of the promise applies personally to Abraham and Sarah. It applies nationally to the nation of Israel, and it applies universally because God gave and will give Abraham's descendants as a conduit for blessing to all of humanity, to the whole world. The reason you're looking at a Bible is because of God's promise to Abraham, the seed promise to Abraham, because the Bible that you have in front of you is a document that is written by the seed of Abraham by the descendants of Abraham. Genesis is written by Moses, a descendant of Abraham. We're saved by a descendant of Abraham, the descendant of descendants, the Jew of the Jews. And so the seed part of the Abrahamic covenant applies personally to, to Abraham and Sarah. It applies nationally to the nation because there's a population of Jews. And it applies globally, universally, to us all. The blessing part of the covenant also has these three dimensions to it. Number one, Abraham was blessed by God in many, many ways, and he served as a blessing to others. Number two, that's, that's the personal dimension. Then there's the national dimension of the blessing component. Israel has been and will be blessed by God, especially when Christ returns. Then there's the universal part of the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. Through Israel, God has offered his blessing to the world through the scriptures, through Messiah himself, through salvation. That's the first part of the diamond. That's looking at the diamond just through its first glance. But if we rotate the diamond a little more, we look at another dimension. That, that is the, the dimension of humanity, personal, national, universal, or global. Then if we look at the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing, through just a different angle of the diamond, we see another dimension. We see the dimension of time, and it is past, present, and future. From Abraham's perspective, those three components, land, seed, and blessing, were all future. But for everybody after Abraham, including ourselves, there is a past, present, and future component to the land, seed, and blessing past when it comes to land god gave a specific piece of land to abraham that he possessed present israel currently possesses some of the land a portion of the land not all the land granted they possess it in unbelief but a time will come when they will possess it in belief which is the future part of the land part of the covenant when christ returns israel will possess not just the portion that she possesses today but the entire promise the entire piece of real estate which is much larger in the middle east than what the nation of israel possesses today and she will possess it then in belief the seed part of the time dimension to the abrahamic covenant past god created the jewish race present god has protected and maintained the jewish race the most persecuted of all peoples throughout all the ages throughout all the ages 
Israel has been the, the Jewish race has been the most persecuted of all the peoples and always will be until there's a new ruler on the planet, until a Jew rules the planet, Jesus of Nazareth. But since Adam fell, the ruler of the world, as Jesus said, has been the devil. And so the devil's objective, of course, is to end the promises of God because the devil hates you. He hates you. And through the Jewish race, through Israel, God sends the promises of God like a pipeline of fresh water, just blessings that flow through Israel. And because the devil despises God and God's people, he wants to cut off the blessings that God has promised you. And that is why he cuts, he seeks to, to end the Jewish race as he has always done and he will always do until he is incarcerated for a thousand years in the millennium and then cast in the lake of fire forever and ever. So the seed part of the time dimension of the Abrahamic covenant is that in the past, God created the Jewish race. In the present, God protects and maintains the Jewish race. And in the future, God has a plan, a purpose for Israel in his coming kingdom. Then we see the blessing part of the time dimension of the Abrahamic covenant past. God blessed Abraham and his descendants and those who blessed him. Present, God preserves the Jew in the face of intense persecution, and God blesses the one who blesses the Jew. I am often amazed why the United States of America still exists, because our wickedness is manifest and multifaceted. But then I often recall how God has used the United States of America to protect Israel, to defend her, to send her military supplies, to be her only real ally. And then I remember the Abrahamic covenant, right? Genesis 12, 3. If you, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so part of the reason why God it continues to have his hand on us, despite our great, great rebellion against him, I believe, is because we continue to support Israel. That's part of the time dimension associated with the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, blessing. I'm talking about the present tense of the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant, which we enjoy today as a nation because we support Israel. And then there's the future part of the time dimension of the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. Your salvation comes from the king of the Jews. You have salvation today, but you don't fully appreciate it, nor do I. It's not on display. We possess it, but we don't fully understand it. And so when Christ returns, our salvation will be fully appreciated and fully understood, and that will be delivered to us by a Jew by Jesus of Nazareth, your place in God's kingdom is compliments of a Jew, the king of the Jews. All of the Old Testament messianic promises of global blessing will be, filled by, will be fulfilled by a descendant of Abraham. Jesus, a Jew, led, well, I'll say it this way. The Old Testament messianic promises, the kingdom promises, will be given to the planet will be enjoyed by the planet through Israel, through the Jewish nation, as led by the Jew of the Jews, the King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. So I say again, the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing, multidimensional. There's the, dimensional, the dimension of humanity, because it applies personally to Abraham, nationally to Israel, universally, globally, to all of humanity. There is the time dimension to these three elements, land, scene, and blessing, past, present, and future. But it's more. You twist the diamond one more time, and you look at it through another layer of light, and you see the dimension of the covenants baked in to the Abrahamic covenant. Because the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant flow out of the land, seed, and blessing components 
of the Abrahamic covenant. Because God's promises are multi, multi, multi-dimensional. As we study the covenants, we'll see that all of the covenants flow out of the first covenant. They're an amplification of the land, seed, and blessing promises that God gave to Abraham. And we'll see all of this as we study through these covenants in detail. As we saw last time, the nature of the Abrahamic covenant is very important. It is an unconditional, unilateral covenant. It's not bilateral. How you approach the Old Testament messianic kingdom promises, in other words, the millennium, pushes you to one answer or another. What I mean by that is there are Old Testament promises that are not fulfilled yet. Old Testament promises for Israel. You have to deal with those somehow. Either you say, eh, those don't exist anymore. They're just vaporized. Or you have to say, they don't apply to Israel anymore. They apply to a different entity. And so somehow you've got to deal with the Abrahamic covenant. You've got to assign some sort of label to it, either conditional or unconditional. When you look at the Old Testament messianic promises that haven't yet been fulfilled through Israel and for Israel. If you take a post-millennial approach, which we saw last time, and I'll just review briefly today. If you take a post-millennial or an amillennial approach, you've got to deal with the future aspects of the Abrahamic covenant that have not yet been fulfilled. And so you take either a conditional or an unconditional approach. And so... Let's just, just by way of refresher from last Sunday, these, different, these, these three different views of the millennium, and when, when I say millennium, I mean the Old Testament messianic promises of the earthly kingdom. But the reason we use the millennium here is because these three ways of viewing the kingdom, the, the thousand-year reign, you know, they, they each have millennium in them. So premillennial, uh, premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism. Premillennialism is the position that I take, that we take at this church, because we think it fits the scriptures best. You have to do, you don't have to do a bunch of gymnastics, of hermeneutical gymnastics to try and interpret the text. Premillennialism fits perfectly in the text. So you have Christ's death. We're in the church age, Christ returns, then you have the millennium. Millennium comes from the language of Revelation 20, where John refers to 1,000 years, specifically six separate times in one chapter. That's where the word millennium comes from. Then after that 1,000-year reign, you go into eternity and the eternal kingdom, and that's premillennialism. Then you have postmillennialism, which takes the view that there's not a literal millennium, there's not a literal thousand years, and instead we're going to have this golden age and we're going to Christianize the world. We're going to bring Christian morals and we're going to spread them through the planet and cultures will become, will, will be transformed as opposed to being a godless, wicked culture in some nation, some area of the world. We'll introduce Christianity there, and they will be transformed, and they will have Christian morals. And, and let me say, I am all in favor of Christian morals. They're biblical morals. But as I heard those words coming out of my mouth, I had to resist laughing because, I mean, when you think of the current culture, Christian morals, that's a joke. We don't even know what the word moral means. No one uses the term, that's immoral. Because if you said that's immoral, they said, well, what do you mean? That may be immoral to you, but it's not immoral to me. So the whole idea that we're going to take Christian morals and create a kingdom, the kingdom of God on this planet, by spreading Christianity, which we should. I'm not saying that we shouldn't evangelize. Of course we should. We should be telling everybody about Christ, and we should be spreading Christianity. But that's not what brings in the kingdom. Don't flatter yourselves. We don't have the authority to bring in the kingdom. The king brings the kingdom. That's the nature of a kingdom. It's owned and possessed and controlled by the king. Kingdom, king, right? 
So postmillennialism is the view that we bring in the kingdom ourselves. This view really died out after World War II, where everybody said, we're not getting better, we're getting worse. And, I mean, I'd echo that today, the, you know, especially Western civilization. We're in the twilight of Western civilization. We're on the way out. I mean, I wish it wasn't true, but if, but if we're honest about analyzing our culture, we have to say, we're not going up, we're going down. So this postmillennialism is primarily a dead doctrine. But what was preserved in postmillennialism was the idea that there's no literal thousand-year reign. That's where amillennialism comes in, which was a doctrine that, that existed. Postmillennialism came into existence around the 1600s. Amillennialism existed way before then, but it kind of died out and then it was revived Amillennialism has the same view as postmillennialism that there is not a literal thousand years. Ah, right, you know, atheist means doesn't believe in God, against God, not is um, contrary against, doesn't believe in God, doesn't exist. Ah, millennialism, there is no millennial, millennium. That's that's the the view of amillennialism. The distinction between amillennialism and postmillennialism is that. Amillennialism says we're enjoying the Old Testament promises, the promises of the kingdom. We're enjoying them now spiritually in your heart as a Christian. Spiritually, those promises are being enjoyed. And if that's the case, it sounds like a pretty weak kingdom. I mean, it sounds like a pretty hollow kingdom. If we're in the kingdom now, and if the kingdom is merely spiritual, all those promises of no war, no conflict, the, 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 the wolf is not going to eat the lamb, there's going to be great health, there's going to be great prosperity, there's going to be great wealth, people are going to live for centuries, all those promises, we have to somehow spiritualize those. Most people die by the age of 100 if not before that. But we saw in our study of the book of Isaiah, someone that dies at 100, they're going to say, what was wrong with you? That's so tragic. That guy died at 100 years old. Because there are literal promises that are given in a literal Bible that will be literally fulfilled. The difference between amillennialism and postmillennialism is amillennialism says we're enjoying the kingdom now spiritually. So those Old, those old Testament promises that have not been fulfilled with Israel, we're enjoying them now in a spiritualized way. Postmillennialism, amillennialism, they both say there is no literal thousand-year reign. And so, if you have one of those views, then you've got to approach the language of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. You basically have two options when it comes to the Abrahamic covenant. Either you say, option number one, because Israel was unfaithful, then God doesn't have to perform. Option number two is, well, okay. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 wasn't conditional. You may be saying, well, this is really a topic for the brainiacs, right? This is a topic for the theological brainiacs in the ivory tower at the seminary. Why are we talking about this kind of level of detail. Isn't this just too much minutia? This is not a topic for the brainiacs, for the theological brainiacs in the seminary. This is a topic for you and me because it impacts the veracity of God. It impacts the trustworthiness of God because if God reneges on the promise to Israel, don't trust God to perform on the promise to you because He's not trustworthy. You shouldn't rely on Him if he fails to perform, or if his response is, well, I'm going to perform, but in this kind of generalized, squishy, spiritualized way. These are literal promises that were given by God, by a literal God to a literal Israel, and so he is obligated to literally perform them. 
This analysis is critical to your relationship to God because if God is not trustworthy to perform his promises to Israel, then he's not trustworthy to perform the promise that you care about the most, that you will not live eternity in the lake of fire, that you will not receive the judgment that you so richly deserve and that I deserve. That promise is a joke if God doesn't perform his promises to Israel because if he fails to, to perform once, then he's just like you and me. I mean, we can have good intentions, but sometimes, even with our good intentions, we're unable to perform something that we said we were going to do. If he fails to perform just once, then he should be mocked, and we should make fun of him like everybody else, like the world does. But of course, that is not the case. God is a God who makes literal promises and fulfills them literally. The text of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, does not allow for a, for a post-millennial or an amillennial view. It does not allow for a generalized, spiritualized sort of interpretation of the text. We, as we saw last time, it is a unilateral, unconditional covenant. It starts with a precondition. You know, back in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, it starts with this precondition Go forth. That's the very beginning in, in, in verse 1. Go forth from, the, from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Once that happened, once Abraham did that, then it vested. The covenant vested. The covenant became unconditional. The covenant became unilateral. I don't know what would have happened if, if Abram had said, Nope, I ain't leaving. I like it here in Ur. I'm not going to go to some foreign land. I don't know the people there. I don't know the language. What are you talking about? But Abraham obeyed God. And so when he obeyed, then all these promises vested, and they became unconditional and unilateral. Look at all the I wills, as we saw last time. Five I wills. I will show you the land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This fits a premillennial approach, which we have seen in our studies so far. With a premillennial approach, the text says what it says and means what it says. There's a principle in legal analysis when you're analyzing a statute, when the legislature passes a new law. You know, it's called like, you know, Senate Bill 4, House Bill 5. Usually the higher numbers get the higher priority in the legislature. So if you have House Bill 1759, that might get passed, but it might not get passed. But House Bill 2, high priority, that probably means the Speaker introduced it. Or Senate Bill 3, that probably means that the Lieutenant Governor introduced it. That thing's going to get traction. That thing's going to move. So if you're if, you've, if there's a new law that's passed the legislature, there's a principle that, that, that lawyers use, which is you read the plain text of the law. And if the text answers your question, you're done. You don't have to go to, to find a bunch of hearings when Senator so-and-so testified before the Senate committee. You don't have to do any of that. You just read the text of the law because the words are assumed in the statute to have the meaning that is the plain meaning of those words. Go to the dictionary, find that word. That's the plain meaning. Same thing for the Bible. The text says what it says and means what it means. That's why we take a premillennial approach. That's why when we analyze the Bible, we use a hermeneutic. The hermeneutic just means a way of interpreting. We use a historical, literal, grammatical hermeneutic so we don't have to do a bunch of gymnastics to generalize the text. The text says what it says and means what it means. That doesn't mean that we take a literalistic view of the text. Right? When Jesus says, I am the door, that doesn't mean that he has a knob and he's made of wood. It's a figure of speech. As we'll see at the 1045, when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he doesn't mean to drink his the blood that's in his veins, or to eat his flesh. It's a figure of speech. So just because we, we believe in a literal, grammatical, historical reading of the text, that doesn't mean we read the text literal, uh, in, a, in, a, 
in a, in a way that is wooden and literalistic, we still honor the figures of speech that are part of speech, that are part of writing and literature and speaking. My point is this. The text of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, make clear that the Abrahamic covenant is both unilateral and unconditional. And in addition to the text, there is a word, a very important word, that is used a number of times in the Scripture that makes it undeniable. Undeniable. The Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. Genesis 17, verse 7, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you. That's between Yahweh and Abraham and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant. That's the word. You can't have a covenant that ceases to exist if it's called an everlasting covenant. I will give you, to verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. First Chronicles 16, verses 15 through 17. Remember his covenant forever, the words which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abram, Abraham, and his oath to Isaac. He also confirmed it with Jacob for a statute to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Psalm 105, verses 9 and 10, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Why do you see the three, the listing of three? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see the listing of all three of those in, in, in Psalm 105, verse 9, in First Chronicles 16 that was just there. Grandfather, father, and son. Why all three? Because the covenant flows through faith. Two things. The true Jew, to, to quote Paul, remember Paul in the New Testament says the true Jew is not just the one who has the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in him, but is the one who has followed the pattern of faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's why the, the promise doesn't flow through the firstborn. It goes, Abraham, Isaac, not Esau, right? Esau and Jacob are twins. Esau's the firstborn. The, the law of prim primogeniture, it would go through the firstborn, but it goes through the secondborn. It goes through Isaac because Esau was an unbeliever, but Isaac was, excuse me, uh, uh, Jacob was a believer. Jacob is, God renames Jacob to the name Israel. That's why you see all three. But really what I want to focus on here is the word everlasting. It's the Hebrew word olam. God is described as being from olam to olam, from everlasting to everlasting. And the point is a, 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 a covenant can never cease to exist if the covenant is everlasting. Nothing can undo this covenant. But really what we're seeing is that God is staking the covenant on who he is. He stakes the Abrahamic covenant on his eternality. God's obligations on the Abra under the Abrahamic covenant will cease to exist as soon as God ceases to exist, which is to say right after never. That is what God is describing when he assigns this powerful word of everlasting to the Abrahamic covenant. The fulfillment of the covenant is dependent on the eternal nature of God, on the trustworthiness, the faithfulness, the reliability of the one who made the covenant. To use my example, I say, I'm going to mow your grass. It's dependent on my trustworthiness. I don't show up and I don't mow your grass. You say, well, you're not very trustworthy, pal. But when God makes his covenant, the one who cannot lie, it's not that God doesn't lie. It's that he's unable to lie, which means he doesn't lie. It's impossible, the scripture says, for him to lie. He has the, the, the integrity to perform it, and he has, most important, the power to perform it, the omnipotence. The promise is not dependent on Israel's faithfulness or obedience. It's dependent on God's eternality and his trustworthiness. Now, the other thing that clinches the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant is a ritual, a ritual that was performed that God did with Abraham, a ritual that symbolized the covenant. Please turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 7. This is a 
This is a passage that deals with an ancient ritual that was used by people who would enter into a treaty back in ancient times. Genesis 15, verse 7 reads like this. And he said to him, the Lord said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. Remember, that's where Abraham was. That's modern-day Iraq. To give you this land to possess it. He said, Abraham said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. The word here for descendants is the Hebrew word serah, literally seed. Your seed will be in this land. Abraham's descendants grew into a great nation of over 2 million people who left Egypt They were literally, the seed was literally in Egypt, and they literally were enslaved there by Pharaoh. Keep reading, verse 14. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. This was literally fulfilled, not spiritually or generally. No, you don't have to do any sort of generalizing gymnastics here to see the literal fulfillment Abraham's seed was literally enslaved in a foreign land in Egypt. They literally took possessions with them. Remember in in Exodus when they left, the, the, the Egyptians were at the point of, go, get out after all the plagues. And so God told the, the Israelites, before you leave, ask your neighbor, your Egyptian neighbor, for their wealth. Don't steal it. Just ask them for it. And so the Egyptians say, take it. Gold, silver, Precious clothing, they gave it to them. And so what we're seeing here is literal fulfillment of this promise from God. Keep reading in verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Amorite was another way of saying Canaanite. When Joshua entered the land, the Jews removed the wicked Amorites or Canaanites. This was literally fulfilled by Joshua. Keep reading in verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces, between the the pieces of of the carcasses. On that day, the Lord made a berit, a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river Egypt as far as the great river, the Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. He's saying all their lands I give to you and to your seed. This is the land part of the covenant, a specific, literal piece of real estate in the Middle East. Because the other parts of the covenant were literally fulfilled, the land will also be, will be literally fulfilled. Some people say, come to the promised land. You're in the promised land. Christianity is the promised land. I mean, I get what they're saying. They're saying, this is the place of blessing. This is the place of fellowship with God. This is the place of relationship with God. I get all that. But that's really not the right way to say it. Because the promised land is not a spiritual thing. It is a specific piece of dirt, of real estate in the Middle East that will be given literally to Israel. They have never possessed all of this piece of real estate. Not yet. Not even in the great day, the great time of David or Solomon. But they will. What I really want to focus on, though, here in Genesis 15 is the ceremony. This ceremony of walking through two carcasses was an ancient way to ratify a treaty. And so two men would hold hands. You know, sometimes you see these images of, of 
guys holding hands in the Middle East, and we're like, hey, what's going on there? It's an old custom. And so this, this particular ceremony is a ceremony where you would do a treaty. You cut the animals in half. The animals are on both sides. The two men who have this covenant between themselves, among themselves, they'd hold hands, and they would walk through the carcasses. And the reason for the carcasses is it was saying, that's what's going to happen to you, pal, if you renege on this promise, on this treaty. But when you look at the text in Genesis 15, there's something very odd about this ceremony. Someone's asleep. Abraham's not walking through the carcasses. It is God alone who's walking through the carcasses. That's the flame of fire. That's the flaming torch that's described there. It's the same pillar of fire that led the Israelites. It's the Shekinah. Remember the the Hebrew word that describes the glory of God, that which dwells. The flaming torch goes through the carcasses while Abraham is catching Z's. He's not a participant in the covenant. He's a recipient of the covenant. But this covenant is wholly and exclusively dependent on the commitment of God, of God alone. It's a very unique situation with this ceremony that is done because it evidences that God is making his unilateral commitment to Abraham. Actually, the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant is an oath. It's an oath by God, from God, an oath that depends on the name of God. There is nothing more important in the Scripture than the name of God. There's no doctrine. There's no principle. There's no verse more important than the name of God because the name of God reveals who He is. His integrity, for example. And so the writer of Hebrews says this about God's oath to Abraham. Hebrews 6, 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. This is a quote from Genesis 22, verse 17. Because God swore by his own name, he staked the performance that he made on his own integrity, which is to say it is impossible for the covenant not to be fulfilled because it is impossible for God to lie. The point is that the covenant that God gave to Abraham is unilateral, unconditional, literal, and eternal. The covenant is foundational. It is foundational to how we understand God's plan for the ages. It impacts many doctrines in the Bible. For example, it impacts salvation. The Abrahamic covenant given to God back in Genesis 12 impacts your salvation today. I'm not making this up. I mean, the Scripture says it. Paul says it in Galatians. In Galatians 3, 7, he says this, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Paul says, the Scripture preached. The Scripture preached beforehand. The Scripture, in Galatians 3, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. That's a quote from Genesis 3. So then those are of faith, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Here's the point. Through faith, we as Gentiles follow the pattern of Father Abraham. Through faith, we as Gentiles enjoy the universal blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. That universal blessing applies to all the ages, the believers of all the ages, that through Abraham, God would bless all the families of the earth. In this age, that applies to, in the church age, it applies to us, but it will apply to the millennium as well. Through Abraham, God has blessed all the nations. And so every person who is saved is following the pattern of Father Abraham, which is part of this covenant. Abrahamic covenant also applies to the doctrine of eschatology. You're familiar with that doctrine? That's two words that are squished together, eschaton in the Greek. 
means the last or the end. And so ology means study of. So you take eschaton and ology, eschatology means the study of the end. And there is an end that is coming. History is methodically marching to an end, which is really just the beginning. It's the end of human history. It's when God comes and establishes his kingdom. And so you can't understand the eschaton unless you understand the Abrahamic covenant. We've already seen that the Abrahamic covenant is everlasting. And if it's everlasting, that means it's got eternity in it. And if it's got eternity in it, that means it's pointing to some, I want to use the word time, but time doesn't really fit with eternity. But for the sake of explaining, I'll use the word time. Time is marching in a direction towards eternity where time ends and eternity goes on forever. And so you can't understand an everlasting covenant. You can't understand the end of human history unless you understand a covenant that pertains to that which is everlasting. Dwight Pentecost put it this way. The eternal aspects of this covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant, which guarantee Israel a permanent national existence, perpetual title to the land of promise, and the certainty to material and spiritual blessing through Christ, a guarantee Gentile nations and guarantee Gentile nations a share in those blessings, determine the whole eschatological program of the Word of God. He's right. There are roughly a thousand prophetic promises in the Scripture. 500 of those have been literally fulfilled, which argues for the remaining 500 to be literally fulfilled. Why would we think that the remaining 500 are somehow are going to be generalized and spiritualized when the first were fulfilled literally? God has given us a roadmap of the end times. The Bible provides prophecies about Israel, about the church, about Christ's return, and about the kingdom of heaven on this planet. And without a proper understanding of the Abrahamic covenant, all those prophecies get squishy. They get fuzzy. Because the minute you take a spiritualized hermeneutic, a generalized humanitic, you've got to make everything fuzzy. And if you're going to make that fuzzy, then make your salvation fuzzy too. Because the text, when it comes to our salvation for the Gentile, by grace through faith, is a specific text. The Abrahamic covenant is full of specific language. And if we're going to generalize this specific language, then we should generalize the salvation specific language. This covenant is fundamental. Fundamental to your understanding of the Scripture. As Pentecost used to say, you cannot understand the Bible unless you understand Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. That's why we're doing a deep dive into this beginning part of the Abrahamic covenant. God's plan for redemptive history and His coming kingdom are colored by the Abrahamic covenant. It's very, very important. And we'll spend a little more time on it next Sunday. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you challenge us by it. Give us eyes to see these things, these spiritual things, that you may transform us by it. Break us of our rebellion. Break us of our desire to be enamored by the world and and tempted by the world. Draw us to you. Humble us before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.